from the campus of Stanford University. This is Schools In. They believe that what we're being told is everything they need to know, and they just pay attention to that. You actually have to teach the teachers how to teach for innovation. With your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I am with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who is the Dean of the Graduate School of Education. Hello, Denise. Baby talk, Pope. Denise, baby talk, Pope. So did, have uh, I named you that before? No, I don't think so. And, it's a and, weird one. Well, this is not because you babble. Okay, thank although, you. Although I'm sure it would be charming. <laughs> uh, it's because we're going to be talking about early language acquisition, early which language is like one of the most fascinating things in the world. Is this what distinguishes humans? What, what, what makes someone human? This is deep. Yeah, that's very deep. Uh, so let me let me operationalize it. What makes humans different from animals? Okay, that's better. Because uh, the, the question you're asking, I just had images of discussions of soul okay. and things like that. Okay, how are we different from animals? Uh, let's see. We can slaughter one another at a scale that no animal could ever do. For Is real? It, war. Oh yeah. Weaponry? Okay. Okay. Was that real. was that too dark? Was that not the that's direction pretty, we're going? I was not even coming so here, close here's, to think that. So here's here's one that's closer. It's not play. Animals play. Uh, multi-part tools. This is that whole like what is it opposable thumbs thing? No, this is like using tools that have a hinge and stuff. So it's very complicated. You have to imagine the motion of two different parts that are behaving differently and they're joined by some causal. Wait. So you're mm -hmm. saying animals can use single hinged tools, but like not a, like a stone to bang something open. Okay, but can they like use a a wine opener? <laughs> no, I'm gonna bet no. Okay. Although, and although that's not multi hinged. What, what is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I can think of tools they can't use that are single part. Okay, but, but in general, I think to imagine the behavior of a ratchet is tough for animals, but we're able to do it. Okay. How about you? I was so not going to go with a war or multi-hinge tools. Yeah. Um, so I had – okay, this is going to sound crazy, but I had this um, eighth grade teacher, <laughs> I really remember this, who was trying to teach us what, what distinguishes us from the animals or whatever and like what actually are some of the criteria for life. So animals are alive too. Yeah, yeah. And she lit a flame in the middle of the classroom and we had to apply these criteria. Does the flame reproduce – well, it kind of did when she lit another candle from it. Does it um, take in oxygen and breathe out CO2? Y yes, right? So we, I, for years for me to remember this, what is life, right? And I know that we're interviewing someone about language, so I'm going to go with language, but I also— Because the flame couldn't talk. Because the flame talk. couldn't talk. Or it could speak to you, but it, it couldn't yeah, talk. Yeah. But I will say this. When I, right when I said language, two things came to mind. Dolphins and the fact that they speak— apparently and can communicate and also what's the gorilla what what's the name of that gorilla coco coco coco, coco. so uh, animals speak to one another and communicate yeah, so so i don't know whether like dolphins can put together sentences like uh the boy who's my friend went to the store with a wagon that was really red that he got from <laughs> his dad and he bought me candy I, mean, I don't. I don't. Do, think I don't know that Coco or a dolphin that. could say that. So the ability to speak in complex sentences—is that what you're saying? Uh, recursive sentences. Okay, define saying. recursive, please. Dan. I was afraid of that. <laughs> uh, 
So I'm really glad to introduce our, <laughs> is, our new guest. Is it time to introduce Mike? Yes. I think we're, we got about as deep as we can go here. Um, we are really fortunate to have uh, Mike Frank, who's a professor of cognitive psychology here at Stanford. His research focuses on children's language, cognition, and development of speech. And um, he's going to talk to us today about how children develop speech skills and the latest research methods to help make discoveries in early Childhood development. Yeah, as well as some of the context around learning language. Yeah. So, uh, Mike. Welcome. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Uh, So, language is fascinating. It's kind of an amazing thing that uh, our vocabularies are big. We all use it. We're all pretty good at it. Uh, There's been a lot of great discoveries in language, but you've had a few as well recently. And before we get to that, I'd just like you to explain this data set that you have, that you've been using to help you generate discoveries and answer questions. Yeah, I, th- I think it actually goes back to the questions you guys were talking about, right? So um, the promise of linguistics and psycholinguistics was we were going to figure out what makes uh, human language kind of uniquely human, what, what are those elements that are universal across humans and that no other animals have. And back then, the project was actually go out and look at languages from all over the world, try to figure out what they had in common. And I think we're, in some sense, we're kind of following up on that project, but from the perspective of language learning. So we tried to get data from languages all over the world and put together data about what words kids are learning and how they're learning them and the sequence and the ages of the kids and some information about them and put that all on the web in a way that researchers, parents, folks who are just interested can explore those data to try to understand what's universal about early language learning and what varies across different cultures. Is, is there a URL for this? Sure. Uh, you can visit it at wordbank.stanford.edu. So uh, it's just a bank full of words. It's basically just a, a set of data on what words kids say and what words they their parents think they understand uh, for a variety of different languages. And, uh, wait, is it in English, though? Wait, I don't get it. Is it? Do you have no, the different languages for there? For a variety of languages. I know, mm. but so you have a word bank for Japanese and a word bank for fill in the blank. Yeah, so so there are all these researchers all over the world who are interested in measuring are kids far along in language learning or, or are they just starting out? Are they at risk for language disorders? And so they give checklists to parents. They say, oh. uh, you check off the words that your child understands or that you think they understand and the words that your child says. And then the researchers gather those up, and they mostly use them to give percentile ranks for things like clinical diagnosis or research studies. But that data collection effort presents this incredible opportunity where we can, as researchers, put all those data together and get a picture of, okay, this Japanese learning group figured this out about the kids learning Japanese, and we've got a bunch of data sets on English, and hey, uh, Swahili and uh, Kigiriyama and all these other languages, and we can really look at what's similar or different across these languages. That is so cool, including the last one, which I've never heard before. Where is that language spoken? Kikiriyama? Yeah, so, so um, this is a data set on, on kids growing up in, in Kenya, and they have um, Kiswahili and Kikiriyama. So cool. Word production and word reception, being able to understand the words, and at different time periods, right? It's, so it's not just at two. It's from, like, age six months up through five years. Uh, we stop kind of around three because if you've had a three-year-old, you know they start saying all kinds of stuff, and it really gets hard as a parent to track what they do and don't understand. Yeah. But uh, the cool thing is you can track the emergence of language, like you said, kind of continuously from a little baby who may understand just a few words and maybe not be saying much, just babbling, maybe saying ma, da, all the way up through this explosion of vocabulary around 
two, two and a half, where kids are starting to say more words than we can count. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope, and we're talking with Mike Frank, who's a professor of cognitive psychology here, about language acquisition and how kids all over the world learn different words, and I guess how fast they learn them. How So what, have you found any themes or patterns? Yeah, it, the patterns start really early. So I think the, the coolest thing for me, partially as a parent, is you are so attuned to your kid's first word. And I remember my daughter Madeline's very first word, which was ba. And it, she's, okay, big. She's a sheep. Yeah. That, no, <laughs> she, just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> bear. She's a bear. Okay. Uh, she was talking about a bear, at least. This, this classic Eric Carle book, Brown Bear, Brown Bear, What Do You See? Yes. And the thing that was amazing looking at these data from thousands and tens of thousands of kids is that kids around the world are interested in the same basic stuff. So their first words are like Madeline's about the kind of animals and small objects around them. American kids are uniquely fascinated with dogs. Yeah, I was going to say dog has got to be up there for U.S. But then uh, around the world, kids want to name the people around them, mom, dad, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa. And they love talking about these social routines like hi, bye, uh-oh, more, peekaboo. All this stuff that kind of engages them from the beginning in the fabric of social interaction. So it's not just about like get me fed, get my diaper changed. It's about like I want to be playing and sharing and interacting, which I think is super cool that that is shared across so many cultures. How much of that is due to parent interaction? Like I'm thinking peekaboo or more. That's me saying, come on, play peekaboo with mommy. Or do you want more? Do you want more? Right? And so how how much of that is parents influencing or how much of that is just like, I don't know, would you say innate? I think we're always studying what we call the dyad, which is just you know, the kid in the kid's environment, we can't separate one from the other. We don't have um, a child who grew up on a desert island. And if, if we did, we'd want to save them from the desert island rather than studying their That's language. That's probably nice. Save them from the desert but, island. But the fact that the same things emerge across cultures. It's uh, very cool. And, and the point that the thing that emerges is what kids are interested in, in their environment, which is going to be their parents, the things they interact with the most. That seems like a general proposition. But it's not saying we're hardwired to say mom first. And there's some stuff that's super frequent that kids don't say. Like, boring example, the word the, right? Most frequent word in the English oh. language. No kid's first word is the or of. <laughs> they don't that's, go like, That's great. And. <laughs> I, I would have never thought of it, but that has to be true. That's, that's great. Really good. I love that. So, Denise, let me, let me play a game. Okay. Uh, uh -oh. And then Mike's going to answer. Okay. Do you think... Across all cultures, boys and girls show different patterns or the mixed patterns of language acquisition. So do I think there's a difference by a boy so versus girl in, in what they learn and so, how they learn? So uh, how fast they learn language. Do you think that okay, boys and girls are different? Okay, this is what I'm going to say. Don't get mad. But I have an N of three. <laughs> that, this would be yourself. Two, two your, girls your, your, and a boy. Yeah. Kids, my kids. I, I would say the girls are going to learn the language faster. In all cultures. I don't know and all yeah, I don't know. I'm making it up. Let's ask the expert. I have no idea. And let's ask the expert. <laughs> What's the answer, Mike? Well, I had a huge bias going into this. I had an N of one plus the preschool classroom. And so I went in and I was like, Well, my daughter talks more than these boys. Right. Yeah. Totally. So, so it's true in the US and it's true in twenty three out of twenty four languages we've looked in. Whoa. Because we are the better sex. I, I just knew, had to throw I, that in there. I knew, I knew there was a causal explanation <laughs> like that. No, that's crazy. What and what? It, a hypothesis? You know, to be honest, I don't know. Uh, 
if you had started off and asked me, I would have said, well, you know, there's these different ways of interacting with girls and some cultures are super focused on uh, uh, gender in particular ways. But that's not what we see in our data, right? We see it's pretty consistent. And so that leads me to think, well, okay, what are what's consistent about girls? I think girls on average, and there are huge individual differences here, but on average, they are more interested in the social world. Mm. So there's studies of girl babies, and they on average like to look at faces maybe a little more and like spinny mobile stuff, like a kind of ceiling mobile, uh, a little bit less. That so, is crazy. So just, just to, in defense of babbling boys, <laughs> yes. is, is this true for, uh, so there's uh, spoken language, but there's also receptive so Can the you boys, say what receptive is? Well, it could be that the boys understand, but they choose not to speak oh, okay. because they don't want to clutter the airwaves. With uh-huh. is, is this true on both sides? Um, maybe they're strong and silent types. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, internationally. I don't know. I, so here's the problem, and we're always – this is me being a very conservative researcher. We get our data from parents, and we trust the parents a little less when they tell us that the boys can understand something because uh, – Where's the evidence, people? Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah, I no, I mean, you could I, say, go get the ball, and then he goes and gets the ball. So I, I guess there are ways that you could probably do those um, tests. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are speaking with Mike Frank about how children acquire language and how fast they do it and some of the situations that lead to language acquisition. Okay, Mike, so now you ask us a question from your data, and then we'll predict the answer. Okay, so... We said gender differences are similar across countries. What do you think about socioeconomic differences? Like, mm. um, you know, we've heard a lot about the issue of um, kids in um, kind of lower income households in the U.S. learning uh, language more slowly, that affecting their school outcomes. Is that something that's kind of a universal trend across cultures or uh, do cultures vary in how much socioeconomic status class affects language learning? I'm throwing that to you, Dan. That's a great no, no, question. It, it doesn't work that way, Denise, <laughs> but I, I will go first. Uh, so I, I'm going to guess uh, so there are certain countries that are poor, but they're good poor. Well, right? Please explain. What does that mean? They're, it's destitute. It isn't poor relative to incredibly rich people around them. Okay. Uh, Con- so, it's consistent or homogeneously poor? Is that what you're uh, saying? It's not viewed as poor. It's sort of viewed as kind of this is our lot together. Okay. Uh, and and so it doesn't have the incredible benefits that go to the rich and maybe denied to the poor. So I'm going to vote that SES, uh, at least measured as sort of direct dollars, does not predict. So because, because there's places where the direct dollars are low, but they're not stigmatized as low. So Cuba has a very good educational system. It's very poor. Okay, I'll buy that. I'll really? buy that. Yeah, I mean, you convinced me. I, okay, I, I, I don't know. We're going to ask the expert now to yes. really answer. How do we do, Mike? Well, okay, so so you went in a different direction than I expected. Because So class is always relative. There are these amazing studies <laughs> when you go to uh, Madagascar, and everybody in Madagascar by kind of European and Western standards has a lower income, uh, basically. But lower than the median in Madagascar, you're doing less well and you look like a poor person in the U.S. Above the median in Madagascar, you're doing better and you actually look like you are uh, kind of a high-class person, even though by some whatever objective international standard at the moment, you're not doing well. Okay. So I, I don't want to say... So that was, that, was, yeah. that was my point. That was Dan's point, okay. yeah. But so there's a but. but there, is, there is a but. <laughs> if you grow up in a social democracy in Northern Europe and you've got and I'm just speculating here, really great parent leave and great childcare resources and maybe some state-sponsored parent education, you know, uh, it looks like your outcomes as a lower-income kid are not 
as different mm-hmm. um, than in the U.S., where regrettably we don't seem to have that same network of supports for parents. So what can I do? I'm a mom. I'm either rich or poor. What, what, what should we do? What can we do? How much of this is up to me to help my child? So the, the thing that I always say when people are like, you're a developmental psychologist, what do I do better with my kid? I say, relax. Uh, that's a good answer. Kids are all over the place. And that's one of the things that comes out of our data set. We could actually talk about that. But kids are all over the place and they take their own roots into language. They vary for a lot of different reasons, including their genetics uh, and the specifics of their individual life experience. So I think the most important thing as a parent is supporting your kid and spending time with your kid and not fixating on these particular targets of this many words or this much interaction, but just trying to support where they're going and interact with them along the way. Is there a time when you say, okay, this is time to worry? I do think so. There's tremendous variation in in the little kids, but when you start to see two, two and a half, three-year-olds who really aren't producing any language, you start to wonder what's up. Sometimes what's up is that language production is hard. It's this kind of complicated dance where you're moving your mouth and your tongue and your lungs and all this stuff. And so it's a speech issue rather than a comprehension issue. But in those cases, you want to ask, is this child understanding language using the term that Dan uh, brought out, is their receptive language good or is that lagging also? And that's where you really want to be consulting with a clinician pretty early. If you have concerns, you go to your pediatrician, then you go to maybe a speech pathologist because the earlier you start to address those problems, the better the chance is that the kid can catch up by uh, school and then it doesn't pose a problem when they're starting to read and starting to interact with peers in that context. So when in doubt, obviously pediatrician is a great resource, but don't freak out uh, you know, at six months or at a, when you hear lots of the little girls talking around you, that the, the little boy, it might be just perfectly normal. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We will have more with Mike Frank talking about um, how children acquire language uh, next on SiriusXM Insight 121. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Mike Frank about language acquisition, how young kids learn the words, how quickly they learn them, a whole bunch of good stuff. Yeah, so there's a study I remember, and I sort of wondered what became of this line of research. And so it may have petered out, but you'll know. So the way this study worked is uh, children are playing with toys and the parent would name the toy. And in one condition, the parent would name the toy that the child's playing with. And the other condition, the parent would say, here, here, look at this toy and name that toy. And so if the parent named the toy in the space the child was playing, the child learned the vocabulary better. Does that make sense? Wait, so can you say that again? So so I'm playing with a doll. Okay. Are you the child? I'm the child. <laughs> right. And I could say Barbie. Okay. Or I could make you look at this dinosaur and say, look, look, dinosaur. And if I named the thing you were playing with, you learned it better. Yeah, because totally you're confusing the heck out of me by saying, look, dinosaur, if I'm interested and engrossed in the Barbie. No? No, I'm pretty exciting. <laughs> so so, so what, was there any follow-up to this? Yeah. Uh, I, I think this illustrates a kind of a general feature of Uh, language learning for little kids, which is that it tends to follow their attention. So Mm. part of becoming a more mature language user is like becoming a more mature person. You focus on what other people are doing and talking about and you collaborate with them. But when you're a little 18-month-old, you're kind of toddling around the world and you like what you like. And if somebody follows you around talking about what it is, then that's going to be a really nice learning signal for you. 
it's not the only way kids learn. Uh, sure. Kids can also learn by overhearing or right. watching that happen with a sibling. But it is really effective to kind of follow in on the child's own interests. So I'm going to view language as a tool now as opposed to sort of the miracle of language acquisition. And the tool is to help me uh, convey and infer meanings, right? And so how does the kid figure out what I mean? So this classic example is there's a Coke can and it's half full and I point to it for the kid and I say Coke. And how does the kid figure out what my intent was? Did I mean the can? Did I mean the sweet liquid? Did I mean half full? Did so you what, mean don't drink it because it's really bad for you and causes obesity? That's funny. You know, that is exactly what I had in mind. Uh, it was but, just a yeah. weird example that you chose but, but Coke, the, Dan. But, but this seems like it has to go hand in hand with language acquisition, is that it's not just learning the label, it's learning the intent. Yeah, and so that, that actually comes out of the idea that you were talking about of uh, learning through what scientists call joint attention, right? So language learning comes out of the desire to communicate and the desire to coordinate with other people. And so that reasoning about what is this person trying to tell me is exactly what I think is the driver of early language learning. And there's some cool experiments that actually show exactly how kids are reasoning about uh, other people. So kind of taking what, what you were talking about with the um, what I'm looking at, if the parent is tricky and actually kind of directs their attention away and kind of really, you know, signals that they're not looking at that thing. Sometimes the child will then follow to the parent and actually trying to figure out what the parent is looking at. So, so you'll get uh, children starting out by kind of just looking at what's in front of them, but then quickly picking up on that kind of communicative signal and following into what the parent is interested in and learning uh, the labels of those things. So how, how does the kid bootstrap into this? Is it just whatever my parent pays attention to, I want to pay attention to? It's sort of built into the system, and then I'm trying to get some synchrony with what the parent, why the parent must be paying attention. I'm busy trying to figure that out. Is, well, but do, how, do we have an ordering of this? How much of that is attention-seeking or pleasing, wanting right. to please the parent? Right. So my kid, I'm busy trying to get the kid to look at what I want, and the kid's busy trying to get me to look at right. what he wants. Right. Yeah, yeah, he always tried to teach me. <laughs> I, you know, there's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing really early in development, but I think what's clear is by before kids can talk, by say nine months, when you really, they're not walking, they're just sitting there and babbling, but they're still trying to share things. So you, you see this incredible desire to point, not just to, to point for pointing sake, but to point to get you to look at the thing that I think is cool. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's this incredibly powerful moment. I remember when my daughter was nine and a half months old and she first pointed to herself in the mirror. Oh. And, I was, and oh. she was like looking at me and looking at her in the mirror. And I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Because yeah. <laughs> you're really thinking about getting me to look at this thing. And maybe I can't tell if you know it's you, but this right. is really, um, it's socially deep before you have any language to talk about it. So in terms of that problem, I think the desire to share and the desire to coordinate is earlier than language and is really kind of the motor that drives language. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We're talking with Mike Frank about language communication between babies and, and their parents. And he just talked about the mirror thing. And I just yeah, want yeah. to say the one thing is I very remember – this happens obviously to almost any parent, right, when they first discover – and they say either baby or they're trying – you know, or they say their name. And it's really interesting that – How do they know it's them? Well, that's the thing, right? I don't know. I think because I was saying, no, that's you. You know, I would say, that's you. That's, that's. But little kids point all the time and say, baby. 
right? Even even when they're looking at a mirror of themselves. So it's it was just an interesting. There's a lot going on to know. Yes, what you yourself look like. How how what mind shattering would that be, right? Uh, yes. So my dog hasn't figured it out. <laughs> my dog does not know. Oh, that goes back to what makes humans different. That from we're narcissistic. Dogs. We recognize <laughs> ourselves in the pond, looking down. So given that, it seems like an implication is if there's a child on the spectrum so that uh, sharing takes a different manifestation. Can you explain Le- on the spectrum, please, Dan? Uh, autistic to some degree, mm-hmm. you know, has, has difficulty inferring other people's intents, uh, other people's emotions. Is that comorbid with language acquisition? What, and comorbid means? <sighs> Sorry, we're just getting a little wonky. <laughs> So autism is a spectrum that goes from kind of high-functioning individuals who, um, you know, may have some difficulties in social interaction, eye contact, reasoning about other people, all the way to kind of really severe impairments where there's very limited language communication, uh, real difficulties, uh, repetitive behaviors, and so forth. So there's just tremendous heterogeneity, variation between uh, kids on the spectrum. But language is one of the defining impairments in in autism. And so you will see kids on the spectrum who have very little language impairment and really only it's the hardest, highest level kind of thinking about what the other person is trying to tell you that's impaired all the way down to real major uh, vocabulary impairments, limited or no language. It's really tricky to tell apart Again, I'm coming back to this as a theme, what's the chicken and what's the egg there? Whether the impairments uh, in communication are really what drive the language problem, the language drives the social or vice versa, but there's definitely some co-variation. So if you're an early childhood educator and you want to help develop the vocabulary of the kids in your preschool classroom, what's the best way to do it? I think they're – two roots, uh, and they're developmentally appropriate for different kinds of kids and at different times. One is through play and rich interaction. And so those grounded contexts, by grounded, I mean around objects in front of you in an interaction where you're doing a routine like building something with blocks or Legos, that can really help scaffold the beginnings of vocabulary. And then when you're trying to enrich and deepen the vocabulary, reading especially reading that's interactive, that the child is asking questions about, where you're really going back and forth and kind of learning the words and figuring out what the story is. That kind of reading really broadens the set of contexts and words outside of the here and now. And there's some really nice studies showing how the words we use in books and the ways we write in books are different from spoken language. And those differences can really promote literacy because they're broadening the world of language that the child has access to. So interaction to get things started, reading to kind of add that depth and breadth, those two activities, which I think most preschool teachers are deeply engaged in are really the ways to, to get language. And going. as a parent too, right? I mean, we always hear you should read, even like to your baby who, who isn't speaking yet, right? You're supposed to read. Is that helping to build the vocabulary? Yeah. It, well, for a baby who can't speak yet, it may be uh, only the kind of basic associations between words and pictures that are starting, but you're also giving them a really important gift, which is the kind of sense of the language by hearing the sounds of the language, the ways words go together. They're starting to build up that passive knowledge that we all have as native speakers that allows us to uh, figure out the boundaries between words, figure out whether it's a ba or a pa, all those kind of little bits of the language that are the skills, the tools that we build up over long exposure. So passive reading at the beginning helps, but then that interactive reading, once the child can 
follow along and interact. That's really um, what scaffolds vocabulary more. Brown bear, brown bear. What? That is the name of the book that his child learned to say bear first. He was reading to her. There's a reason why she said bear first. It's not that she saw a bear in her backyard. So I don't know what book I was reading my kid because his first word was more. <laughs> so My favorite finding. So no is a lot of kids' first words, uh, but it's especially younger siblings' first words. Yes, they love it. Love it. Thank you so much, Mike, for this really uh, interesting conversation. And thank all of you for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app on iTunes and on SoundCloud.